0: Scripture reading tonight will be in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Revelation 20, 1 through 3. It reads, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Thank you, Lynn, for leading us in these beautiful songs tonight. Thank you, Tim, for reading our scripture this evening. And we're very happy uh, to have each of you with us as we come to worship God once again and to study from his wonderful book, the Bible. If you... Uh, uh, did not get a an outline, then please raise your hand and one of these uh, deacons will bring an outline to you. And I hope that you will take the outline and that you'll keep them and that uh, you'll save them and study them as time goes along. And I, I do hope that they're helpful to you. A number of things I include in the outline that I'm not able to uh, discuss simply because of the time, but I do try my best to follow the outlines best I can. I see a mistake here The Second Death, parentheses 19. I do not know what that means. Um, The parentheses 19 does not belong. So if you're looking at the title, The Second Death, that makes perfect sense. And then Revelation 20 makes perfect sense, but that parentheses 19, I still don't know why I was doing that. But anyway, please scratch that out or just ignore it because it just doesn't belong. Uh, As you will see, we're coming down to the end of our discussions of this great book of the Bible. And this... Chapter in particular is one of the uh, favorite playgrounds of cranks and kooks and nuts, if I can use that word, uh, about the Bible. They love to jump on Revelation chapter 20, and they try to make it say all kinds of things it was never intended to say. And I hope that by our study tonight, we'll be able to make more common sense out of what God wants us to know as we're studying Revelation chapter 20. Uh, There's a certain number of principles that I think we need to keep in mind as we embark on this great chapter of the Bible. It is admittedly, in some parts, a very difficult chapter of the Bible. But there are some principles that I think we ought to be reminded, and uh, that will help us. Number one, and I, I think I've included these particular matters for you on the outline, the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It is filled with a lot of pictures and symbols, And it ought to be, well, to remember that. And when you're looking at a picture or a symbol that comes from a book like this, then you want to ask yourself the question, what is the truth behind the picture? Uh, What's trying to be conveyed? It's not to be taken in such a literal type of fashion. And try to remember also that the book of Revelation is not presenting matters in chronological order as such, like this happened first and this happened after that, whereas um, it's trying to give us the subject and the concept that's going along in the mind of the divine writer. Uh, For example, Jesus is not born until chapter 12, about halfway into the book, the woman that gives birth to the child. It's certainly not a chronological depiction of events as they took place. It wasn't meant to be that way. If you look at Revelation chapter 19, then you had, as we studied last Sunday night, the birds of prey came and devoured uh, the wicked who were in the battle. And they did, and they devoured all of them by chapter 19 and verse 21. But then by chapter 20, you have the nations again that are deceived by Satan. So it's not a chronological look, and it's important to keep that in mind. What it is, is more of a logical look at the events and the concepts that God wants to present, and by chapter 20, you have this great climax in which the people of God are victorious over the wicked. The wicked depicted in the book, first of all, is the the great dragon that we learned about. And then the two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, which is also called the false prophet, and then the, the great city of Babylon. But then they meet their doom by the end of the book in reversal order. You have Babylon the great meeting its doom in chapter 17 and 18, which we studied, and then the two beasts in chapter 19, and then now tonight the dragon, which is Satan, is going to meet his doom. He's going to be restrained. Now talk about that in, in just a few minutes and what that happens to mean. Uh, the focus which many people place on chapter 20 is the 1,000-year reign, and that's the wrong thing to look to. He's not emphasizing the 1,000 years in the chapter, as he's emphasizing the doom of Satan and the destruction of Satan in this particular chapter. It is an exciting uh, chapter as you see the demise of Satan in chapter 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's a great passage and it's a great chapter talking about the end and the doom of the one who's deceived the world and actually brought sin and wickedness into this world. It has some difficult sections in it. For example, verse 7, "...and I for the life of me really can't make out any definitive answer." And when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison. I, I'm not sure what he's getting at there. I don't know why that is a such a, a matter. There's been a lot of discussion regarding that. But the message of the book of chapter of the book and chapter 20 is very clear, and that message is that those who follow the Lamb win, and those who follow Satan will lose. Now, because there's so much misunderstanding about 20. Let me spend just another moment, if I may, describing briefly what it does not say. And I think that will help us in our understanding of what it actually does say. One of the things that we need to understand is that this passage is not premillennial in its content. There are three basic views. All of them focus on when Christ comes again. So the time is the second coming. Will the thousand years be... Uh, after, before the second coming, a premillennial approach? Will the thousand years be after the second uh, coming of Christ? Will the thousand years be during that particular time, a postmillennial approach, an amillennial approach? You know, these different views that you and I have studied, and I have just touched on very briefly, uh, all come to bear in our understanding of the book. Uh, because premillennialism is so popular today. I listed some of the basic tenets of premillennialism in your outline, showing that they are not taught in Revelation chapter 20, though it is chapter 20 that they constantly go to to try to support their premillennial views. For example, the second coming of Christ is not referred to in chapter 20. Uh, Christ coming to the earth is never mentioned in chapter 20. And nor is it mentioned anywhere else in the pages of the Bible. Coming again to earth, you see. The throne of David is not mentioned in chapter 20. Uh, Reigning for a thousand years on earth is not mentioned in chapter 20. The church on earth is not referenced in chapter 20. A bodily resurrection is not referred to in in chapter 20. A symbolic resurrection is mentioned in verse 6, which we'll talk about in a moment. The conversion of the Jews in Palestine is not mentioned in chapter 20. And so there's just any number of references that are basic tenets of premillennialism but certainly have no bearing in the 20th chapter and are not even mentioned in the 20th chapter. So it is a very uh, consequential study when we come to Revelation chapter 20 because there's so much misinformation out there. And we need to clear the air and just look at what the Bible says about it as best we possibly can and then make the proper application. And that's what we're going to try to do tonight. He talks about those who overcome are blessed. They are vindicated because God is going to bring judgment upon the wicked persecutors of the church of the Lord and the righteous shall be with the Lord forever and ever. One of the first points of Revelation 20 is the binding of Satan. And I divide the chapter up into four points. It makes it easier for us to understand. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. A lot of commentaries make a mistake right here. They want to say that's Christ. But I never see Christ referred to as an angel. Not in the book of Revelation. Not in the pages of the New Testament. I don't believe Christ is an angel. Uh, I believe that He's working through angels. I believe that as you read the book of Revelation, He uses the angels. But it's certainly not Christ that He refers to when He talks about an angel. A great angel from heaven is being sent to do the will of God. And we see a lot of that in the book of Revelation. He has a key. The key is simply reference to the power to open and close this pit, which we learned about earlier in the, in the book itself. It is in chapter 9 that we learn about this great pit, chapter 9 and verse 1. And uh, it is a a figurative place of doom and destruction for the wicked. And then he mentions the chain. He simply means to bind, that which binds the wicked. And the dragon here is the one that he has in mind. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. To say that the devil is bound simply is to say that the truth, the Word of God, limits the access of Satan's ability to deceive the nations. The chain is the Word of God. When people study the Word of God and they follow the Word of God, they're set free. They're set free from sin. They are enlightened by God in His revelation, and they are no longer deceived. And so he takes the Word of God and he binds or limits the work of Satan He is thus bound. The thousand years is a figurative term; it is not a literal term that is to be referred to here. But he is bound for that period of time. He's talking about the church age here, and the and the binding is a figurative type of binding. It's not a literal binding. What kind of chain would it require to literally bind up Satan? Um, I remember the first time that I saw an arraignment where these. Men and women came in in orange jumpsuits, and they had chains on their hands and chains on their feet, and their hands were bound to their waist, and they were bound. And there was very little that they could do, though they could still move about. Well, what kind of chain would it take to bind Satan? If you want to look at this literally, what kind of links would it be like? What would the material be composed of that could bind a heinous being like Satan himself? Uh, He's not talking literally here of a chain. What he is saying is that Satan is bound. Satan cannot deceive the nations. Why? Because we have the Word of God. We're living in a church age. We're living in an enlightened age because the truth is there. In John chapter 8 and verse 32, the truth makes us free. He is limited. That does not mean he is not active. He surely is active and does what he can do in order to deceive. But that ability to deceive has been limited, and he is bound in that, in that regard. I'm thinking about First um, uh, Peter chapter 5. You may want to turn with me uh, to that particular passage. And I'm looking at about, um, uh, oh, verse 8, uh, I think is what uh, I want to read. And you'll recognize the passage when I, when I get to it. He says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, he has his activity. He is active, but that activity is limited. He cannot overwhelm us. He cannot do us in unless we allow him to do that. Paul talks about the wiles of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 that he's able to do this. He dupes us, fools us, deceives us, and in turn we fall for that. But yet we allow that to happen. He can't just overwhelm us. So the binding of Satan has to do with the fact that the truth has been revealed and the Word of God is there for everyone to study and to learn and to refuse the devil himself. Now, I can't give you a good explanation, really, of that verse 7. Let me get back over there to that. He is bound uh, uh, for a thousand years during this time where the truth is being taught, clearly so. But Satan will be released from his prison. Uh, He will continue to try and and deceive uh, uh, the nations as he has the opportunity to do that. I'll talk more about that in a minute, and I can't give you a good explanation of what he has reference to there, But at any rate, there seems to be a time when people will quit listening to the Word of God, and then they'll start believing the false teaching of the devil. Uh, But he is limited in what he can do. And in turn, what limits him is that chain which is the Word of God that binds him. And it is in that figurative, symbolic sense that the devil is bound. I'd like to look and press along here because of my time and to about verse 4. Which is the second point that I think he's making in this uh, chapter of Revelation. And that is this uh, first resurrection. Uh, let me read a verse or two and then I'll explain. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or the image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Uh, Notice what he saw. He saw thrones, and he didn't see bodies. He saw souls. And the American Standard Version and this English Standard Version uh, treat this as being two groups of people. There are those who have been martyred or beheaded, which we learned in chapter 6, verse 9, "...for the truth, and they were under the altar, crying out to the Lord, "'How long will it be before you avenge our blood?' And then the and there, those who had not worshipped the beast, which we learned about in chapter 13. The beast of the sea, but then there was a beast of the land, which we said was false religion, forcing the people to worship the emperor, forcing that upon them. And if they did, then they received a mark of authentication." Well, he says, now here are the souls of them that were beheaded and those who did not worship the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You see, these are dead ones. And so in that instance, they reigned with Christ in that glorified state and in turn received the reward of their faithfulness. Um, He tells us in verse 5 about the rest of the dead. See, I think he's talking about dead ones here. The rest of the dead, verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is when we start our spiritual walk of life with Christ. That's the first resurrection. When we're baptized into Christ for the remission of sins and rise up out of that water. It is a type of resurrection. Romans chapter 6, 4 through 6, and we begin to live the Christian life. And that culminates in our fateful death in Christ Jesus. So the first resurrection begins for us as we were baptized into Christ and were raised to walk in a newness of life a new creation of God, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. And it will end for us when we actually pass from this life faithful to God. Now notice with that in mind how the passage reads, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. That individual has been faithful and true to God and to God's Word and lived faithfully for him. That second death, which is the destruction of the wicked in verse 14, has no power over him. Let me skip to verse 14. And that will help us understand a little bit more about what the first resurrection is. This is the second death. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It is ultimate destruction of the wicked. Those who are unfaithful suffer the second death. But those who have experienced the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them, he says in verse 5. It does not have any uh, authority over them because they have lived for Christ and reigned and reign with him. The first resurrection is the righteous cause which we live, the righteous cause of the martyrs. And those of us who are faithful to the Word of God, blessed and holy, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, verse 6, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with Him for a thousand years, a thousand years. That time and period in which the church continues to grow and continues to be active and alive here in this walk of life. I must press along, though, in order to cover all the material that I want, and that's this lake of fire that we read about, verses 7 through 10, and that's his next great point. He talks about uh, uh, Satan being bound in verses 1 through 3. He talks about the first resurrection, verses 4 through 6, But now he talks about a lake of fire. And once again, this is a symbolic type of reference to the wicked. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. I wish I could tell you more about that, verse 7. Evidently, uh, what he may be referring to is a day and a time when the Word of God is not preached, when the Word of God is not believed, when it is not practiced... And Satan is able to deceive the nations once again. There is a brief period of time where that will take place. A lot of people have tried to say, well, that's when apostasy really comes upon the church. And, and it's a very difficult time that the church faces once again. I don't know how to answer that as objectively as I know, as I know how. I, I just can't give you a, an honest, objective answer to that. Every position on verse 7 has problems. And I just can't be dogmatic about that as there are many points about this book that I cannot be dogmatic about. I don't know everything about it. The main point of this book is the victory of the righteous in Christ Jesus and how that they overcome because of the Lamb and the sacrifice of the Lamb. What all Satan is going to be able to do here, I just can't be sure. I've heard preachers get up and preach and bring up this particular verse and they say, this is when there's a day and a time when uh, there's going to be terrible apostasy and falling away, and guess what? We're in it right now. Uh, yeah, it's a little hard for me to embrace that and accept that. I'm sure every time and every period of history has been times of great wickedness and great sinfulness. Um, you can think about the times of the First World War, or think about the times of the Second World War and how terrible. Those times were and I'm sure those people probably thought, this must mean the end of the world. The world is engulfed in a terrible world war. This must be the end. And of course it wasn't. And then we've had all kinds of wars in between ever since then. There's the Korean conflict. There's the Vietnam War. There's Desert Storm. And and it seems like the list goes on and on. And it seems today how terrible and wicked the problems are in the Middle East, even to the present moment. Um, I was listening to some of the newscasts, uh, how that ISIS is doing this or ISIS is doing that. And you've probably seen some of those newscasts as well. Some of the atrocities that they are committing in northern Iraq. Uh, one, you know, it just makes your blood boil sometimes to see how wicked and heinous Some people can be. Can I actually say that this is those times, verse 7? I can't objectively say that. I I wouldn't know, and we've got to be careful here. Otherwise, we'll be guilty of trying to set a date for the second coming of Christ. You know, if we're not careful here, we're saying, well, these are the times which are very wicked. It must mean the second coming of Christ is coming soon. Well, we all know that we can't do that with any degree of certainty. Christ or God has told us when the second coming will be. And no one can really set a day or a time or look at the scenes and the climate and say, well, this must mean the end of time is coming soon. And I've heard well-meaning brethren, some of them preachers, say, you know, we're living in such difficult times now. This, we're fearful this may be the end of time. Well, no one really knows that. And I, I suppose that I am talking a little bit about this verse, verse 7, because it's a difficult verse. And I just really don't know all that's involved in verse 7. I've probably given it more time than what we should. But I want you to be aware of it. But I don't want you to be mistaken into thinking that I can look at the political climate of the day and there in turn predict this must be the time he's talking about in verse 7. Even though these are terrible days, it seems, throughout the world. I don't know. No one really knows what he has reference to in verse 7. The best that I can surmise is that there will be a time when the Word of God is not preached, and the Word of God is not believed, and the Word of God is not practiced, and that Satan takes advantage of that and deceives the nations and tries to deceive them and teach them a lie, and many of them believe And hence the reference to Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog have no reference whatsoever to the atrocities going on in the Middle East. Gog and Magog were a people and a land in the pages of the Old Testament. But here they're used to convey the idea symbolically about the enemies of the church of God. Look what the enemies of the church of God do here. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. You see, God destroys them. And whoever might raise his head up against the will of God is going to be the loser when he does that. Verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 10 is a very consequential verse. You have Revelation 20 and 10. And he's talking about the demise of Satan. He talks about the false prophet, the beast of the land. And then there was the beast of the sea. They're already there. And then there's the city of Babylon, uh, the one, the harlot who was riding on the scarlet beast, destroyed because they persecuted the church of God and did their best to overcome the will of God and set themselves up against God. That is the end result of all who fight against God. Whether it be individuals or communities or countries, empires will all receive the same result. You see, it would not be enough simply to destroy Babylon the Great, nor would it be enough simply to destroy the beast of the sea and the beast of the land and not destroy the dragon. Because the dragon would simply get other tools to do his terrible work. He has to be destroyed as well. And that's what you have in chapter 20. The destruction of the dragon. It's a great chapter. It's a chapter of victory. The emphasis is not on the 1,000 years. The emphasis is on the doom of the devil. When he fights against God and he's going to lose... But there is a beautiful end to the chapter, Revelation chapter 20, and that is the great judgment scene. And I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about that as I have a few moments left and uh, break, make a point or two I hope that will help. In verses 11 through 15 is the last paragraph, it is the fourth point of the 20th chapter that I see. And he talks about a great day of judgment. And I call it the judgment because there's going to be only one judgment. Uh, I'll talk about the great white throne in just a minute and, and all that's associated with it. Again, some of the hucksters of religion would have us to believe there are at least two judgments. There's a judgment for the righteous and then there's a judgment for the wicked. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. That particular notion is false. There are not two judgments. There's only one judgment. They would try to say that there's more than one resurrection. But there's only one resurrection where the righteous will be raised and the wicked will be raised. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. And notice Paul in his uh, sermon on Mars Hill how he puts it here. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commends all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day... "...on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." He has fixed a day. It is not two days of judgment. It is one day of judgment. There is a great day coming. There is one judgment that is coming. There is one resurrection from the dead. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. This particular chapter talks a lot about the judgment, and uh, there's a lot of discussion that needs to be given with regard to the first part of chapter 24, but I'll I'll confine my remarks down to about verse 36, which I think he is talking about a transition point not of the destruction of Jerusalem as in the A part of the chapter, but now the judgment of everyone as far as the B part of the chapter is concerned. Verse 36 is the B part, what I call the B part of the latter portion of this chapter. But concerning that day, he's talking about the day of judgment now. And hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now he's not talking about the judgment of Jerusalem to come upon them by the Romans. Now he's talking about the judgment of us all. And he says, now of that day, he's not talking about several days here, as is the denominational position, but there is a day in which all shall be judged. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let me skip on down, if I might, uh, to a particular passage uh, in the latter portion of of this particular verse. Notice as he says and as he talks about the wicked servant, about verse 46, "'Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes.'" Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put put him in with the hypocrites in that place There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, we just don't know when the end of time will come, but it will be a day that will take place. John chapter 12 and 48 is another important passage that helps us understand that day even more. But I want to direct my attention back to chapter 20. And I want to give a little explanation as to the symbols. Then I saw a great white throne, verse 11. And him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky, fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now a bookkeeping type of system is referenced. And it's not that God has literal books that are going to be opened, but it's a symbol to help us understand how we're going to face God on the day of judgment. I believe he's talking about Old Testament books and New Testament books. That those who lived under the Old Testament will be judged by the will of God as per that dispensation. I believe he's talking about New Testament books. Those of us who live under the New Testament will be judged by the will of God, the New Testament, as per that dispensation. But then there's another book that's here. It's called the Book of Life, called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he tells us that all that are written in the Lamb's book of life, that they shall be with him forever and ever. And it's a beautiful picture of God judging the world, blessing the righteous, and condemning the wicked. Notice how he says from his presence, the earth and sky fled away. You know what he's saying there? He's saying they are no more. That this physical world is not going to last forever. And no place was found for them. They're gone. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. We're going to be judged by what we've done. We're going to be judged by what we've not done. The Bible is telling us of that great day of judgment. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. There's that phrase again. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment day. There's a great day coming. Are you ready for it? We're all going to have to face it one day or the other. I was reading some time ago of a um, person taking the interview of a trapeze artist in the circus. And um, that's been some time ago, and I can't remember where I read it, but it was very interesting. His family was in that. His parents had been his grandparents had been in this this is the way they had made their living and and they were rather famous trapeze artists as a family and through the course of the interview he was talking about how they did these very uh, interesting acrobatic maneuvers and and then the fellow that was conducting the interview uh, asked the question well you know why do you have that net down there under the on the ground And the fellow that was being interviewed, this trapeze artist who'd done this for years, he says, that's so that I don't break my neck. He said, because it could be at any time when we do one of these maneuvers, something could go wrong, we'd fall to the ground, I'd break my neck, we'd die. And he said, I have to admit, since I know that that net is there, that I really am able to exert myself and do more than what I would otherwise try to do if the net had not been there. I thought, well, I can see that. I'm sure he's right. He probably does things he wouldn't otherwise be able to do because of the net. I view Revelation 20 as our net. I view Revelation 20 as saying you can be a faithful child of God regardless of what the world says and regardless of what the world does because you got a safety net there now if you choose to be unfaithful then you're going to lose that net but with your faithfulness god's going to protect you and god's going to care for you with your name written in the lamb's book of life you're going to be victorious in the great day of judgment when god judges the world i see revelation 20 is a very encouraging chapter to help us live the Christian life, to strengthen us, and to help us be all that God wants us to be, which we wouldn't be able to do without it. If we didn't understand these particular matters, we wouldn't understand about the demise of Satan and the doom of the wicked. But now because I understand that, that God has got a day set aside for the judgment of the wicked and the judgment of the world, those who refuse to obey Him, those who refuse to live for Him, I can now live with Him, with greater strength, with greater faith, with greater commitment, greater dedication. Because I know i got this safety net under me. that God is going to catch me if I remain faithful. Now I emphasize again, if I choose to allow Satan to win in my life, the safety net will be removed. And I will no longer have the grace that God has to offer for me. But with Christ as my Savior and my obedient faith, I can overcome, which is the message of this great book. Such is what we can do with Revelation chapter 20, the short time we have tonight. Well, I want to encourage you to obey the gospel of Christ tonight. I want you to repent of your sins if that needs to be done this night. I want you to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to obey the same gospel that the early disciples were taught and the first Christians learned on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I encourage you to remain faithful to that gospel by being baptized into Christ and live the faithful Christian life every single day. If you have not done that, then you need to repent of that sin. No matter what the sin, repent of it and become faithful to Christ tonight. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.